excuses, excuses, excuses. Have you ever used that phrase? Or at least you've thought that phrase when you uh, considered what other people were saying or doing and trying to excuse themselves? You know how frustrating it is when you so clearly see when others are just hiding behind excuses and some of their excuses are so clever and so, so good, but you can still see through it. Parents, do you see that with children? Or even with adults, with one another. Perhaps you can think of in your life, in your circle of influence, your family or friends or at work, uh, someone on whom you put this aura. And that person just is really good at coming up with excuses all the time. Well, this morning, uh, we want to look at the reality that excuses, excuses and excuses uh, are also a reaction and a response we often have towards God himself. And if sometimes other people can fool us with their excuses and we may not see them all the time, uh, God always sees our excuses. And in the passage we are going to look at this morning, he wants to address the excuse pattern that the people who bore the name of God, uh, Jewish people, uh, the people of Israel, have had towards God for a long time. So I invite you to open God's Word this morning to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 2. We'll be continuing uh, our sermon series, uh, reading from verse 17. And we'll be reading all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. God's word this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 8. Here is the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent, uh, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised 
keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if, if, if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every, everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying as uh, we approach God's word that he would help us hear it well. Let's pray. Father, as we just heard this word that you revealed to us, and as we are confronted with this pattern of finding excuses before you, Father, would you open our hearts, help us to see the ways in which we are often inclined to find excuses, and use this word, the preaching, the proclamation of this truth, to expose our own hearts as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray this for our edification and our benefit spiritually so that our eyes may be opened and that, O oh Lord, you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, this passage we began to read is a little bit awkward. It, uh, it starts in the middle of a conversation. Have you ever been uh, entering into a conversation between two people and you feel like, I'm not sure what they're talking about, and you're just getting halfway into the conversation? If you are new for the first time here or uh, you haven't been with us last week, it may feel like you're entering into a, the half of the conversation, and it is. Because starting with chapter 2, verse 1, Paul has been engaging in a dialogue with an imaginary Jewish person uh, a, a feature uh, of, in ancient literary uh, literature called the diatribe, in which an author would engage with an imaginary dialogue partner, in this case, uh, an ideal Jewish person or a Jewish person, um, who would speak to Paul and Paul would speak to them and he would respond back with some objections. And this dialogue is aimed to communicate an important message that Paul has in this section of Romans, namely that 
no one can escape God's condemnation. Not even the Jews. And the question that a Jewish person would ask is, well, why not? Uh, there are so many things that we have going for us. And Paul has to, um, has to engage in this dialogue with his Jewish dialogue partner to lay down the case why, why he has no foundations, why he has no excuses. Now, most of us who are not Jews might wonder, why do I need to hear this point? If I am not a Jew, uh, I'm a Gentile, uh, this is not for me. Well, there's so much to learn from this diatribe, from this dialogue that Paul engages with this imaginary Jew. Uh, last week, the, the first half of the dialogue focused on debunking false confidence, especially the confidence of those who find comfort and shelter in their morality or in their religious background. Convincing a religious person, someone who feels that they've lived a good life, a right life, convincing them that they need to be saved is one of the hardest things uh, because they think they're already fine. The text today will continue that aim of debunking the false confidence, but this time it's exposing two specific excuses that any Jewish person would bring up in this, in this dialogue. And after Paul exposes specifically the, the two major excuses that a Jewish person would find, Paul will close up this dialogue with addressing four implications or objections that a Jewish person would, would bring up after he has heard what Paul had to say. So, we will look at this morning and this uh, overview of, of the remaining of, of the text we have just read uh, reveals what, what we could summarize as the main argument of this text, and that is even religion can blind us from our need of Jesus. Even religion can blind us from our need of Jesus. How did this happen for the Jewish person? And even if you're not a Jewish person, like most of us is the case this morning, there's so much to learn about how the religious experiences of the Jewish people uh, blinded them to understand their need of Jesus. And we see here in this passage, there are three sections. Uh, the first two deal with specific excuses the last section will deal with, the, with the, some final objections that Paul would address. Uh, these three sections will provide the, the three points that we see how can we uh, be watching out that religion does not become a blind spot for us uh, and blind us from our need of Jesus. The first point, enthusiasm about God's word cannot be a substitute for obedience. Enthusiasm about God's word cannot be a substitute for obedience. We see that in the first part of the text we have just read, verses 17 through 24. 
Paul begins uh, again in this dialogue, uh, begins our text by identifying the dialogue partner that he's speaking with and telling us that he thinks he's a Jew. He calls himself a Jew, verse, 20, verse uh, 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and more so, he's a person who relies on the law. He boasts in God. In verses 17 to 20, there's a list of if statements. If you notice carefully, there's a bunch of if statements. Calling himself a Jew, relying upon the law, boasting in God, knowing his will and approving it as excellent. The person Paul is talking to is doing all these things. And more so, in verse 19, this person is sure that he's a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. And the status was not some self-approved role that this person just came up with. Oh no, this, these, these words were attributed by God to his servant in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah, uh, the passage Pastor Taylor read at the very beginning of our service in Isaiah 42. Uh, a similar expression shows up in Isaiah 49, where God speaks about the servant that he will send. And, and many of the Jews thought, oh, that servant must be the people of Israel. So here is the ideal Jew. We might think of them as, oh, we understand the role God gave us in the Old Testament to be a guide to others because they have God's law, to be a light to those in darkness, teachers of the children or of the immature. All this this ideal Jewish person appropriated for himself. They got it. They understood it. They thought of themselves, this is their mission. In other words, they were enthusiastic about God's word. And they were confident that they can help others. This is the person with whom Paul is dialoguing in this diatribe. Yet, their enthusiasm and their confidence in their role in regards to God's word for the rest of the world was deeply distorted. You know why? Because their enthusiasm for God's word was only for the sake of others, not for themselves. Look at the challenge Paul gives in verse 21. You then, <clears throat> who teach others, do you not teach yourself? when we feel great about the knowledge that we have of God's word, but when we actually don't apply it to our own lives, we fall in the same trap of a distorted enthusiasm for God's word. And, and if you've been a member of this church for a while, you know how enthusiastic we are for God's word here, right? And you know that we are confident <clears throat> 
in the power of God's word. But here is a trap for us as well that we can fall into. Any of us, me included, any of you who are teaching in some way or fashion God's word among us, we can fall in the same trap that the Jewish people fell into. Namely, to get excited about the Word, to find insights, new things about the Word, new explanations. And it's all so that we can tell others about it. But we fail to apply it to our own hearts. And that makes the enthusiasm about God's Word distorted. Friends, this trap is a trap every one of us needs to be watching out for. And especially if we as a church are excited about the Word, which we are, we can get excited about learning new things. And yet those insights never get applied to our own hearts. We can fall in love with learning new doctrines, with digging deeper into systematic theologies, to understand the truth of God, but only for others, not for ourselves. You know, one of the most encouraging feedbacks I love to hear from you is not Oh, pastor, that was a great sermon. The more encouraging and the most encouraging feedback is, well, pastor, that message helped me to see this issue differently. That issue challenged me about this area of my life. It's when we start making the connection between the insight into God's word and the personal application of how it challenges us either to live differently, to think differently, to approach a matter differently, to feel differently. In verses 21 to 23, Paul brings up four examples of the hypocrisy of the Jewish person that Paul is addressing. And he brings up a number of pretty gross sins, stealing, adultery, idolatry, Now, why these sins? Because in the history of God's people, these actually were characteristic of the history of the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Just here, just one example. Uh, Besides the passage that was read earlier by our brother Alex from Ezekiel 36, here's another one. Uh, Jeremiah 7. You don't have to turn there, just listen along. 8, verses 8 through 11. The prophet says to God's people, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And 
when Jesus shows up, what does he call the temple? A den of robbers. It hasn't changed over the years, over the centuries. So that the ideal Jewish person who took pride in having access to God's law, in knowing what God said, in his ability and privilege to be an instructor, to be a guide, to be a light to the nations. He prided himself in, in all these privileges of access and role of being a teacher, and he forgot, just looking back at the history of the people of Israel, throughout their history, that they have done exactly the opposite of what God had called them to teach and be. Paul, in a way, is speaking here to the ideal Jewish poster kid who thought confident in his or her Jewish religion. And Paul has to bring these specific black and white sins, if you will, not because this ideal Jewish poster kid did it, did all of them, but because the people and the tradition and the religion that, care, that he was hiding behind and under was actually guilty of the things that God had commanded his people not to do. Paul is not saying here that every Jewish person committed these specific sins. You might say, I don't do any of these sins. But you're missing the point. The argument Paul is making with these examples is the things the law of God calls you to do, in some way, fashion, or form, you are breaking it as well. No matter how enthusiastic you are about your role as a teacher, and no matter how confident and comfortable you are with your knowledge of God's Word. Well, friends, enthusiasm about God's Word is no substitute for obedience to God's Word. And what is at stake when we hide behind an, a, a distorted enthusiasm about how much we know about God and what happens? What's at stake when we actually fail to live it out? Verses 23 and 24 actually tell us what's at stake when we just cling to this distorted enthusiasm about God's word. Verse 23, you boast, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now why is this a big issue? Remember how Paul began his argument to condemn all humanity of being guilty, of being unrighteous, and therefore rightly deserving uh, the wrath of God. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Um, and, and then he goes on to explain how that started off. Paul says that men have dishonored God by rebelling against him, by failing to acknowledge him as creator. They have rebelled against God. And here, Paul says, there's another way to rebel against God, not only to fail to acknowledge him as creator, 
The Jews didn't fail to acknowledge him as creator. The Jews dishonored God in a different way, by breaking his law, even while acknowledging that he is a creator. So what's at stake when we have a, a distorted enthusiasm about God's word is that when we actually break God's word, we do the same thing the people in, in Romans 1 do. We dishonor God. But something else is at stake when we replace obedience to God's word with mere enthusiasm for God's word. Look at verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a quotation from the Old Testament, two places in particular. Isaiah 52, the Lord speaks about his name being blasphemed among the Gentiles. But Paul uses a quotation from Isaiah 52 and actually puts the blame not on the Gentiles, puts the blame on the Jewish people for why the Gentiles blaspheme God. And, and the same echo is brought from from the passage from Ezekiel 36 that our brother, brother Alex read earlier, that it's because of the way the Jews responded to God's law, how they disobeyed God's word, uh, that's why the Gentiles ended up blaspheming the name of God among the, gent among, among the nations. Friends, breaking God's law dishonors God. Breaking God's law causes the name of God to be blasphemed among the nations. Do you settle for mere enthusiasm about how much you know of God's word? Do you settle for mere enthusiasm for your ability to teach others God's word? Friends, that enthusiasm can be a snare and an excuse for any of us to hide behind and fail to actually apply that word to our own individual lives. Have you thought of obedience to God's word, not in legalistic terms, but as means of honoring God? So when we fail to do God's word, we actually dishonor him. We can fall in the same trap when we think about the very news of the gospel. If, if we and all of us who are Christians, if we think of the gospel only for those who have not heard it or for only for those who are not Christians and we fail to apply the gospel to our own hearts, in our own battles with sin, in our own failures, if we fail to preach the gospel to ourselves and to practice it and rehearse it to our own lives, well, friends, we fall in the same snare that the Jewish people fell into. It's only for others, not for ourselves. A second way in which religion became an excuse uh, for hiding from God uh, was, or is revealed in the second part of the text we have read. And from the second text, from the second part, we learn a, another principle about how to avoid hiding behind religion as an excuse. Outward identity cannot be a substitute for a heart change. Outward identity cannot be a substitute for a heart change. We see this in verses 25 through 29. Again, 
the ideal Jewish poster boy would think of his identity as a Jewish person. And visibly there was a sign that would assure him he belongs to the people of God. That sign was circumcision. A major identity marker for any Jew. Yet in this text, even this outward sign of belonging to the covenant community, Paul declares to be worthless if it's not accompanied by obedience to God's word. Look at verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, holding to an external sign of religious identity while breaking God's law makes that external sign void, worthless. It's true that God gave the sign of circumcision as an identity marker for the covenant community in the Old Testament. But it was never intended, ever, to be merely an outward sign. It was meant to be an outward sign of an inner experience. And Paul unpacks this in verses 29 and 28 and 29. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. From the beginning of the Old Testament, this was God's intent. Uh, let, me, let me take us back to the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses clarifies this. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, he says to the second generation of the Israelites before they enter the, the promised land, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And then Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says to the God's people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath goes forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Their disobedience, their breaking of God's law was actually an indication that their hearts had never been circumcised. Their hearts had never been changed. That's why when we think even about circumcision and the Jewish identity marker, even in the Old Testament, it was never supposed to be just an outward experience. That's why Moses, in the second book of the law, when he spoke the law for the second time to the second generation, the book of Deuteronomy, he not only gave them the commands of the Lord, but one of the most common commands given in the book of Deuteronomy is the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind. Because the obedience to God's law was never supposed to be just an outward performance. It was to be to come from within the heart. But of course, the rest of the story of the Old Testament tells us that as, as much as that was God's intent, it never became a reality. 
for most of them. So Paul clarifies here in Romans, not as if he is bringing an absolutely new insight to them. He's just rehearsing what God has said from the very beginning. He says, but you are a Jew. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Oh, friends, the circumcision that God's people needed was not merely the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart caused by the Spirit of God. So, the lesson for the Jewish person in this dialogue and the lesson for us is that outward identity markers cannot be a substitute for heart change. And the one who produces the heart's change is the Spirit of God, whom God pours into us through the preaching of the Word. And this is why the new covenant that God promised through prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, from passages that we have heard earlier in the service, God promised to give a new heart through the promise of giving a new spirit, His Spirit. What are today ways in which we also settle in for merely an external experience, even of Christianity. We have the phrase, we've heard it here, we say it here, nominal Christian. Being a Christian in name only. Just calling yourself a Christian and yet not being one on the inside. Oh, friends, that's a danger we are facing around us all the time. Just because we have a religious experience at some point in our lives, just because we have been baptized, just because we have joined a church, just because we have walked down the aisle, does not mean that actually the heart has necessarily been changed. Having a name listed on a church membership role or the, the memory of a decision made for Jesus decades ago. Sometimes Christian parents talk about adult children who are not walking with the Lord, saying things like, my child is not walking with the Lord, but I know he or she is saved. Friends, Outward identity markers are not a substitute for heart change. And outward identity markers can happen to us without a true heart change taking place. Should people make a decision for Jesus? Absolutely. Should people get baptized? Absolutely. Should people join churches? Absolutely. These are public declarations that should be outward manifestations of inward changes. But it is possible that these outward declarations may come by themselves. That's why we as a church, when we think about baptism and membership, 
we take this process very slowly here. We think that instant baptisms are very dangerous to the spiritual climate of the people who would be instantly baptized. Uh, or joining a church without thinking carefully uh, of understanding what a person professes to, to believe and to live. And if there's any discrepancy uh, between these that we would consider carefully is the outward sign, is the outward identity marker that God commands us to have, is it truly tied in with a heart change? Now, we don't know that for sure in an absolute way, but we want to be prudent and do our best diligent work to make sure that the outward signs are only associated with those in whom an inner change of heart has taken place. Friends, how do you know if the inner heart, if the heart has been changed by the Spirit of God? How do you know? And the answer is by an ongoing, joyful obedience to God's Word by faith. The obedient, the joyful obedience, not the, not the just a, an obedience just for the facade, just to manipulate God, just to show others that we're fine, when in, our, in, in reality our hearts are not joyfully obedient to the Lord. The Old Testament demanded not mere external conformity to the law, but that internal heart change. And yet the Old Testament covenant while it pointed to these demands, was never able to deliver that reality. The need was for God to promise a new covenant. When God would send His true servant, His own Son, to walk in the path of His suffering servant, because Israel in the Old Testament was never able to live up to what God actually commanded them to do and be. God had to send his son Jesus, who truly was the one and only suffering servant, so that through his perfect obedience to God's law, and through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the dead, God would actually work in the hearts of his people through his spirit to bring about a new change of heart. Friends, this is the promise of the gospel that the book of Romans wants to make known to us, to the Jewish people. And Paul in this passage has to first show the Jews that as much enthusiasm as they had for God's law and as much confidence they had in the external sign of their identity marker, they actually were far from the realities that they were boasting in and confident about. So, the truths that Paul laid out here in chapter 2 caused his Jewish dialogue partner to react in all sorts of objections. So in the last part of the text that we have read, Paul will close up with a few implications and clarifications of objections. And all of these could be summarized in the third point in this way. Our unrighteousness proves God's right to judge us. Our unrighteousness proves God's right to judge us. By the end of chapter 2, there's a clear implication from all that Paul has spoken to this ideal 
Jewish poster boy. There is no difference between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to God's condemnation. And this Jewish poster boy clearly got that implication. That's why his first question is, is there then any advantage to being a Jew? That's his first, he wants to jump out of his seat and say, Paul, is there then any advantage to being a Jew? And Paul says, yes, there is. And there's advantages in many ways, but not in the way you think of it. So Paul begins the first advantage in verse 1. Then what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, what is the advantage then of being a Jew? Well, they had access to God's word. And they were entrusted to make God's word known. This great access to God's word was an advantage because it gave greater responsibility to the Jews to act rightly. But sadly, they did not use that responsibility well. And therefore, this access did not give them greater security from God's judgment. Yes, there's an advantage to being a Jew, but not in the way you think of it. it there's an advantage in having greater responsibility, but there's no advantage in having greater security. Mere access to God's word did not guarantee that they would have the right response to God's word. And the next verse shows us that. Because, as the next verse says, some of the Jews did not believe. So, while there is an advantage to having access to God's word, did it make a difference in the way they believed? No. Oh, friends, this should give us chills as well. Having access to God's word is indeed a benefit we can have. But only to heighten our sense of responsibility. Never to increase our sense of security. So ask yourself, do you take any comfort in the fact that you have had access to God's word in the past? That advantage is no guarantee of a faith-fueled response of obedience. Objection number two. If Paul's words are true, that the Jews, some of the Jews did not believe, even though they had the advantage of having access to God's word, then is God's faithfulness suspended? If Paul charges that the Jews did not believe God and therefore God condemns them, is God's character in question by the fact that God, instead of saving the Jews, he now has to condemn them? Is God unfaithful if the Jews have been unfaithful? That's the second objection. Now look at verse 3 and 4. Paul says, if some were unfaithful, does their, unfaithful, does their 
faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, by no means. Let God be true even though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul is saying here that even if every human being were to be proved to be a liar when it comes to God's truth, God still remains true to his word. His judgment of sinners is still righteous. Just because humanity suppresses the truth of God and exchanges it for a lie, and just because even the Jewish people did not believe God's truth and actually turned it into a lie, God still remains true. And actually Paul quotes a verse from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's psalm of repentance. When David is finally confronted with his sin, grieves for it, and acknowledges that God is right to judge him because he was in the wrong. This is the heart posture that, that Paul is hoping every Jew would have, that they are in the wrong and God is right to judge them. Friends, even if all humanity has chosen the path of lying about God, about who he is, God is still faithful and right to judge us. His condemnation we cannot escape. Objection number three. If our unrighteous uh, actions puts greater spotlight on God's righteousness, is it right for God to pour out his wrath on us? If at the end of the day, God is the one who benefits even from proving us to be unrighteous. And, and you, can, you can see how this Jewish poster boy is trying to find excuses. Look at verse 5 and 6. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And, and Paul says here, of course, I'm speaking in human terms. Again, Paul says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? You see, in this objection, man wants to escape God's wrath by suggesting that the end result should justify the means. If the end result is that God's righteousness shines forth even brightly, more brightly through our unrighteousness, can't God cut us some slack? Why are we going to be punished if at the end of the day, God is still the one who gets the benefit out of all of this? You know, we, we have to give this Jewish boy some credit for coming up with these clever objections. But you see here the heart trying to escape the wrath of God through all kinds of excuses. And Paul's answer is, even if our unrighteousness serves to highlight God's righteousness, God is still righteous to judge us because he's the judge of the whole world. That he cannot undo. And finally, a final objection, the last one in this text, verses 7 and 8. Paul speaks again, and he's putting words in the, in the mouth of this Jewish poster boy. He says, if humanity's lie makes God's truth abound, why am I still condemned? 
And, and Paul adds a, another objection there. And why, in verse 8, why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? In other words, even Paul himself was brought in and accused that somehow he was promoting a kind of righteousness where it allowed people the freedom to continue to live on sinning because their sin exposed more of God's righteousness. So the logic went. This time to this last objection, Paul gives a different answer from all of them. He's not saying by no means. To this objection, he's actually saying that those who think this way prove how utterly deserving they are to be condemned. Their logic in this last objection is actually proof of their right deserved condemnation. Verse 8 ends with these words. Their condemnation is just. In, here, in this one, they're trying to escape God's judgment by turning the tables back against God. And doing so is wicked. So, the point of all these is you cannot escape. There is no excuse to escape God's righteous judgment of sinners. Of those who think they are very religious. Of those who are enthusiastic about their knowledge of God's word. Of those who have the external identity markers and yet they break God's law. Paul says, you have no excuse. No excuse to hide behind. Well, friends, I wonder, what is it for you and I, Christians, who may fall in similar snares as this Jewish poster boy that Paul is addressing in this text, thinking that a distorted enthusiasm about God's word is enough to protect ourselves from God's condemnation? thinking that our knowledge about God, that our knowledge about His Word is enough to keep us safe. If it does not produce an obedience that comes from a heart that has been regenerated, changed by the Spirit of God, all of that external identity markers, calling yourself a Christian, pretending like you're a Christian, acting like one when it's convenient for you, will not do it. So, even religion, even religion can become a blind spot for us to keep us from our need for Jesus. Are there ways in which you use religion to excuse yourself from needing Jesus for your salvation and walking with him? Let's pray.